Now, the following episode isn't thought out. But then again, no episode that I have ever made has been thought out. But this one was less thought out than most. I was on the way around to the shop to buy some minced meat for the cat. And I just pressed record because you can do that in podcasts and started talking. Now, as it turns out, I think I was just... uh, you know, a stream of consciousness uh, rolling all the thoughts that I've been having in the previous episodes into one, almost like a review, maybe. But I didn't think it through that deeply. Uh, so, you know, it's just a bit of a um, bit of a chat. Uh, and, uh, but of course, as I always do, you know, I, I, I go over stuff I've talked about before, which I don't dislike because it uh, it helps me um, consolidate things I've been musing about before in my mind you know each time I you know imagine I was a comedian these episodes are very funny but not in a funny way <laughs> but imagine I was a comedian practicing for a skit and I think the comedians do that uh, and, and and they say the same skit, oh, you know, let's call it an episode. They say they repeat the episode over and over to themselves in a mirror, I believe. And, um, and they hone it and hone it and hone it until they can say that skit pretty much the same, uh, you know, word for word, every night on a, on a world tour, Eddie Izzard style, um, in French, German and English, and a few other languages as well. So, so I suppose this episode is a little bit like that. Me honing uh, my shtick. Uh, but, but in my case, for no reason. Uh, you know, the only reason, the only reason I'm doing it is because I just happened to do it while I was on, the, on my way around to Coles to buy some minced meat for the cat. There is no reason. Ah, and inevitably, I add little bits that I have never thought of before. But that's par for the course. I just now listened closely to a short section of this podcast on the papacy that I'm listening to from time to time to get ideas. To try and get an idea of uh, the legend, shall we say, of how the early Christian communities got going. And if you like, the reality uh, of all of that. It really doesn't matter um, whether it actually happened like this or not in my book it's irrelevant whether it actually happened like this or not because either way the church and other churches you know the catholic church and other churches uh the catholic community and other communities derive legitimacy from these stories whether they are true or not you know and this is me rolling back to this idea I sometimes run with 
um, that it doesn't matter whether things happened or not uh, in terms of whether people can you know, build churches on these sorts of things and build ideas on these sorts of things. Like I said, with Ethiopia, for example, it doesn't matter whether Solomon and Sheba existed and had a baby together. It doesn't matter whether that's literally true or not on one level because whether it was literally true or not, a hell of a lot of people believe it was in Ethiopia for a start and in the Ethiopian diaspora. Um... A hell of a lot of people believe that to be true and have built the idea of Ethiopia upon that, whether it was literally true or not. Now, if the idea of Ethiopia is as solid as a rock, and it is, I've um, spent enough time looking into Ethiopia to know that it is, you know, um, if it is as solid as a rock, the idea of Ethiopia, you know, and Ethiopians uh, do live their lives you know, um, with the with a solid idea of uh, Solomon and Sheba being sitting uh, in their history as an origin story, you know, and if that has sustained Ethiopia. Uh, these last 3,000 years and Ethiopia is still as solid as a rock and it really is you know even if they even if the country collapsed uh, into civil war it's still strong it's been having civil wars all its history you know it it can have millions of people die you know Um, it can uh, you know the the place can completely fall apart but it'll still be there you know Um, this is what happens with places like Ethiopia their culture is strong. They can, you know, they can have a couple of, they can have a couple of decades of slaughtering each other and absolute mayhem and all that sort of thing. But Solomon and Sheba still sitting there, and um, and it keeps going, you know, because they're keeping their, you know, they're very, very um, successfully, I think, keeping their cultural identity um, strong, you know. In, in a way that places like perhaps England and Germany and all that are not, you know. Germany is becoming extremely multicultural, much more so than a place like Ethiopia, so they won't have that strength, you know, 500 years from now, that sort of strength, you know. And I don't make any value judgment about that. I'm just saying, you know, a place like Ethiopia, um, for example, in the recent refugee crisis, for example, um, uh, the uh, the you know uh, European countries were taking refugees from wherever they could, you know, with um, and 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 weren't discriminating on type of refugee. Or you know they were trying not to. Angela Merkel was trying not to. You know, um, they've all stopped that now. You know the the gates have been shut largely. But you know there was a period when um, uh, you know let them in you know um now uh england was you know getting ready for brexit and all that sort of thing and england reached out you know and england (laughs) england was trying to get in a brexit frame of mind and um wasn't happy you know it was sort of doing in australia 
or doing a Hungary, you know, and saying, listen, we don't want to take so many refugees and all that sort of thing. And we want to make the rules, you know, as to who we take in and all that sort of thing. You know, there's a very Australia sort of thinking and a very Hungary sort of thinking. And England had that sort of thinking too. Uh, Germany was doing the opposite. And so was, you know, Sweden and you know, Scandinavia and all those areas. Right. Uh, so, but Ethiopia, uh, yes, yeah, so England was, so um, Theresa May, English Prime Minister, cut a deal with uh, the EU and the World Bank uh, to push some money across to Ethiopia. If Ethiopia would agree to take some, a, a good whack of, um, a good whack of refugees in return for a fair bit of money, um, you know, to establish jobs and all this sort of thing, um, and infrastructure projects and all that sort of thing. Well, push, you know, and they, they all, uh, there was, there was a little, it was all done fairly hastily. I really think that I was, I was following it at the time. Um, and there was a summit of some sort. Oh, don't tell me which one it was, you know, um, G4, G10, whatever you want to call it. I can't remember, but everyone was all gathered in the corridors of Brussels or somewhere. And, um, and lo and behold, Theresa May said, um, we are working with our partners, Ethiopia, you know, and we are not letting the refugees down. Ethiopia has, uh, you know, this would have been carefully prepared. Ethiopia has agreed to take, you know, X amount of refugees, and it was quite a lot. And we have agreed to push across, you know, I think it was half a billion dollars or something, um, to Ethiopia. And it's all win-win. Everybody's, you know, there's going to be jobs. There's going to be this, going to be that. It all, was, it all looked really good, you know. And she made a lovely speech and said, you know, this is, hold, this is, um, yeah, this is good for Ethiopia. Um, and it's good for uh, the refugees. And England is being, a, you know, a responsible citizen of the world. And, um, and we're going to continue to block the channel and not let the people in the zoo um, on the other side of the channel to come through, you know, to England um, to a large extent, you know. So it was a deal that was made. And then Ethiopia, and I'm not, I really don't know if Theresa May saw this coming, nor the EU, nor the World Bank. I really don't, I, I really suspect they didn't see this coming because you think the world leaders got everything planned out to the last um to the nth degree they're not as in control as you think they get surprises too um you know world leaders pull swifties on each other you know and i i think ethiopia might have pulled a swifty on uh, you know the big three that's gb great britain britain the eu and the world bank you know i was following it at the time and i could have it wrong but i was following it I don't think many people do because not many people follow Ethiopia, just my goddaughter and I. And, uh, and then um, Ethiopia said, yep, we'll take our fair whack of refugees. Uh, oh, England on one condition, no Arabs. You know, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, they only wanted to take people from Somalia and Sudan, essentially, left and right of Ethiopia and... You know, culturally, you know, probably a bit different. Um, you know, Muslim, but and Christian, Ethiopia is a Christian country, but then Ethiopia's got a lot of Muslims as well. But the interesting thing is, um, left and right of Ethiopia are Somalia and Sudan, and yes, there's no, you know, it was South Sudan, so you know, culturally a little bit different, but not that different from South Ethiopia, I guess. 
Um, but here's the interesting thing. It looked like Ethiopia was taking foreigners in. Uh, but Somalia, Sudan, you know, that whole region really is the ancient Abyssinia. They're all the same sort of people, sort of. Now, don't go screaming at me, you know. Because, um, but... Um, yes, we know there are different tribes. They're the mixed tribes, but that's what the word Abyssinia means, the mixed tribes. We know they're mixed tribes. We know they're not identical, but they're a long way from Arabs. Yeah, and the point is Ethiopia kept it fairly tight you know, because modern borders don't mean anything. It looks like they're taking people from foreign lands, but at other times in history, those foreign lands haven't been that foreign. You know, that whole region was just Habesha, Abyssinia. Abyssinia is a is a uh, an Arab word for Habesha, as far as I know. Right? Um, so um, Ethiopia Ethiopia keeps its sort of cultural integrity intact to a certain extent, which means even if it all descends into hell, they've still got the same sort of cultural identity rocking along, and Solomon and Sheba survive intact. And that's how that sort of thing keeps going, okay? Which, you know, I suppose on one level I applaud them, you know, but I applaud Angela Merkel for her saintliness at the same time, you know, and I applaud Theresa May for getting duped. <laughs> oops. <laughs> you know, I think it was an oops moment. Um, okay, so that's how that works. Um, so, look, um, I think it's an important point, um, and... Um, uh, you know, so that way, a place like Ethiopia or, you know, that whole area of the Horn of Africa can go to hell and back as far as conflict and, you know, anything else, you know, whatever, famines, um, you know, anything. They, and um, they can have high times when they're the kings of the world and they can have low times when they're really starving. You know, things can go bad, things can go good, but the point is... Ethiopia is still there, maybe, probably, 500 years from now, um, in roughly its current form, you know. And, you know, you might say, no, no, Ethiopia's falling apart, look at it all, it's a mess, you know, Dr. Abbey's in there and he's going to cause absolute civil war. And I say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the cultural integrity is still there. Even if you slaughter 90% of, you know, even if Ethiopians slaughter 90% of each other, you know, um, the 10% will, you know, populate pretty quickly and it's still there, you know. Whereas, you know, the ancient German culture, um, you know, starts to, um, to uh, be diluted, you know, if the, you know, if the Germans um, uh, take and, and, you know, and it might be a good thing that the ancient German culture is diluted if you hate the ancient German culture, you know, because it probably created the Nazis. You know, that might be an argument you might run. You might say, good, good, if the Germans die, you know, cultural, cultural, culture-wise, good, you know. And I've I got no problem with that. The point is it does die, you know. And the old gods of Germany, you know, the ring cycle, Wagner and all that sort of stuff. I say Wagner, I don't say Wagner, you know, otherwise you're going to force me to say, otherwise you're going to uh, force me to say Haydn instead of Hayden, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And, I'm gonna, and you're going to force me to say Bach instead of Bach, 
you know, no, you're going to cause me, force me to say Bach instead of Bach. And I'm not going to, not going to go around saying Bach, you know, and, um, and all that sort of thing, you know. So I say Wagner. All right. Now, so this is, this is my take. Um, and culture remains strong um, if, um, if the whole culture continues to believe in its myths, you know, and even more so if it sees its myths as truths. And, you know, you can argue till the cows come home whether Moses, not Moses, whether um, Solomon and Sheba were real or not. It really doesn't matter because Ethiopia is still kicking along and that's the proof of the pudding that they are real enough for Ethiopia to, you know, to, uh, to, they're real enough for Ethiopia to still be kicking, you know. And the same goes with Christianity. Uh, you know, the Catholic Church, let's say, built on Peter, um, built on the rock that is Peter. You can, you know, you can get into a pointless debate about whether Peter existed in the way the Bible says he. Uh, yeah, and even if Je- uh, whether Jesus existed in the way that Jesus is said to have existed in the Bible, you know, you can spend a lot of time debating on that. But look, if you walk down the street and you still see a great big church there, yeah, and no one's turned it into a disco, then for all you know, um, the idea of Jesus is just as real as. A literal Jesus. And I think you can waste a lot of time. And I think the easiest way for me to look at these things is to say that Catholics, for example, um, tell themselves that Peter existed for sure. Right? And that leaves it open. I'm not saying whether I think Peter existed for sure or not. In fact, I'm saying it doesn't matter. I really am saying it doesn't matter whether he literally existed or not. You're never going to prove it one way or another anyway. And same goes for Jesus, okay? So, you know, in these podcasts, I'll tend to say, uh, I'll tend to inquire uh, as to um, what the Christians tell themselves as to what happened back then. And even if it didn't happen like that, um, my guess is something like that happened back then. So it's worth knowing you know some people say i don't even want to know about it because it's not worth knowing because it's not true and i say well you know i walk down you know when i walk down the street i see a big church and i like to know how that got there um and you can say it was built on a lie but i say well you know it was built on a good lie then you know and it's such a good lie that it's worth knowing Okay, that's the way I look at it, you know. All right, all that makes sense to me, but it might not make sense to anyone else. Uh, most of the world is built on myths, you know, myths of who we believe we are. You know, it doesn't have to be religious. Most of the world is built on um, stories we tell ourselves, you know. A science is built you know, loose, you know, if, if you're being lazy, science is built on the idea that our senses... Uh, detect fact you know Um, but you know that's not provable that what our senses are detecting is reflective of what's actually happening um, out there in the universe or even if the universe exists you know there's no proof of that 
Now, I really like that one, don't get me wrong, but you know, on an absolute technical level, science is built on a story we tell ourselves that um, what our senses are detecting in terms of measuring things in the universe, speed, distance, time, you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, um, yeah, and we see a brick and, you know, because we see it, we say it exists, you know, and then Henry Ford goes up, you know, because someone asked Henry, asked Henry Ford, how can you prove that brick exists you know and Henry Ford was a very practical man he's the one that started the Ford Motor Company and he went over and kicked that brick and he said that hurt and he said it hurt so it exists now get back to work you know that was Henry Ford I can go for that I can go with that he was using his senses of touch ouch and his senses of sight you know and his senses of logic and his sense and his sense of get back to work you know um, and and that in that way he got cracking, you know. Um, so he's trusting his senses um, to be his guide, you know. But other people trust what they want to believe to be true, you know. So in the modern era, we have progressives, for example. Well, there's progressives in every era. I think my era might have been the most progressive, you know, because I was born in the 60s and grew up in the 70s, you know. So we, you know, that was a gr- uh, perhaps greater period of change than even we have now. Um, you know, when I was, you know, I was a young progressive, um, and uh, the, a funny thing has grown up uh, um, since I, you know, I'm over 50 now. And somewhere along the line, even though I was a young progressive, um, there's young. Now, I'm going to use the word white, even though I don't you like the word white. But there are young, white, males, uh, progressives now um, in the 20, you know, 21st century who, um, who I think tag me as an old white man. <laughs> You know, an old conservative white man, you know. I said, hmm, when did I get redefined? Uh, I was a young, I thought I was a young white progressive. Oh, it must be just the process of getting older. Is that what does it, you know? And, you know, I sit there and say, hey, that's not fair, you know. Uh, Don't I get to redefine myself, you know? Um, Who who, who recategorized me? Uh, (laughs) But then... Suddenly I feel very relaxed because I know that those young uh, male white... Oh, I don't like the word white, but I'm going to use it because it's contextual, you know. I'm talking about them, not me. <laughs> you know, I'm not talking about what I think, I'm talking about what they think. So you get a young white, you know, hippie. You know, I was a young white hippie once, you know. Um, so you get a young white hippie now, uh, a young white progressive male, 19, and... You know, he might look at me and say, you old white man, you're making all the rules, you know. I say, no, I'm not, I'm just speaking into a podcast. Um, and most of it bulldust as well. But anyway, he might say that. And I said, oh, oh well, well, you don't know what's coming to you in 30 years. You're going to get recategorized by the next lot that comes up when you're 56, you know. <laughs> That's a little present waiting for you. Uh, all right, then. Now... Um, same goes for you girls and some same goes for you in-betweens you, um, and all of us, you know it happens to all of us we have got no choice right, so um, you know, I think this is how it goes and that's the way I like to look at it you know um, so, yes, with um, 
you know, progressives um, say a lot of things these days, as we did when we were 20, you know, let's say 20-year-old progressives, they say a lot of things that about how, you know, um, let's say gender issues, you know, and they say the, the modern, you know, the, um, the gender rules of 2019 are right, you know, right, and... Um, and and good and moral and the way it is and should be, you know. Now, that's very similar to the way Christians back in 2,000 years ago said Jesus is right and good and the way it should be, you know. Very similar. Um, and, you know, because the Christians were progressives back then. They're conservatives now, but they, they were progressives then. You know, just like the progressives now, the progressives now could be conservatives in 20 years, all right. Uh, everyone gets their own. Everyone cops it in the neck eventually. And the progressives shall be conservatives. You know, it happens. It happened to the Christians. You know, they were the, they were the flash new young mob. Jesus, he was only in his 20s, you know, before he started his mission. Peter, same age as Jesus. All of them, they're all in their 20s, you know. Um, this religion of the old people these days, you know, the old stuffy conservatives, well, this religion was actually created by people in their, you know, who were 30. Yeah, I dare say most of the apostles were in their 20s. No one was over 30 when Jesus' ministry started. Um, so everybody was 30. So, you know, you get heaps of old people like me going to church. Um, we're actually following a, relig- a religion created by people in their 20s, you know, and maybe Jesus had just hit 30, you know. But he definitely uh, formed all these ideas when he was in his 20s. You know, these are young men creating a religion that people these days tend to think is a religion for you know, mainly older people, you know. But um, it's actually a youth movement is Christianity. Christianity is a youth movement. It's not, you know, if you read the Bible, it's not the sort of stuff that a 60-year-old is going to come up with. It's the sort of radical sort of stuff that a 20-year-old is going to come up with, you know, or 25-year-old, 29-year-old, you know, the sort of thing Jesus was coming up with, you know, and he hit the ground running at 30. So he had already, you know, got all his ideas. They were already fully formed, by the time he hit 30. You know, like when David Bowie became Ziggy Stardust. Ziggy Stardust burst onto the television screens, fully formed. You know, he didn't make it up as he went. He designed Ziggy Stardust before he started. And everyone was shocked, you know, because David Bowie had been nowhere before that. He sort of started, you know, one hit wonder, you know, space oddity and one hit wonder and Everyone thought he was going to be a one-hit wonder and, fa- wonder and fade into the distance, you know. Uh, and then suddenly, bang, fully formed. And I think David Bowie might have been aged 30. You know, it's always 30. That's when we get exciting, us males. Um, David Bowie, you know, I, I bet you he was 30. Um, and... Um, Suddenly, Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars uh, just uh, burst onto the scene fully formed because he had been designing that character, you know, the, his ideas for that, you know, basically, you know, an alien rock star from out of space. I think he was designing himself a little bit on the character of Little Richard, to tell the truth, you know. 
I don't like white. I don't like black. I don't like that talk of white and black. However, I think David Bowie was a white little Richard because David Bowie was crazy about little Richard. You know, in his teens, he was um, horrified by little Richard. He was amazed by little Richard. David Bowie wasn't so different from me because little Richard was my favourite too. Little Richard was a favourite of a lot of people, you know. Skitty white boys, you know. Bob Dylan, the Beatles, you know. We were all the same. Me, you know. I was the only one who didn't get famous. Um, uh, a lot of people. Um, Lemmy Klimister from Metallica, you know. Um, oh, there's a lot of others. David Bowie, of course. You know, they all saw ACDC, the boys from ACDC. Bon Scott, you know, Angus Young. You know, they all cite Little Richard as their inspiration. I mean, they all went and did Chuck Berry songs and all that sort of thing. But Little Richard was the one that went. they, they said, we're modelling ourselves on him. We may not get into his songs very much, you know. And that was mainly because no one could sing Little Richard's songs, except Paul, Paul McCartney. He could, he could. Paul McCartney was the only person who had the voice for it, um, to sing, uh, you know, a foot above his own head. You know, Paul McCartney could do Long Tall Sally and he could do it a tone up on Little Richard too. Paul had a ripping rock voice. What a pity he was born such a prat, you know. Imagine if he was cool and he had that rock voice. He would have been amazing, Paul, as it is he's a prat. You know, I can't stand Paul McCartney. I listen to hardly know anybody else. And that's true. I almost always listen to Paul and I can't stand him. Yeah, can't stand you. Listen to you all the time. Right, so that's the way it goes. So Jesus bursts onto the scene, fully formed, age 30. It's a youth movement, you know, just like rock and roll was a youth movement. Um... And um, so it's progressive, um, and uh, and a lot of movements today are progressive. Well, in every era, you know, but especially since the 1950s, you know, youth movements have been big. You know, rock and roll was the first great youth movement since Jesus. Um, um, rock and roll. Yeah, was the invention of youth culture, and we've had youth culture ever since since rock and roll. Uh, and yeah, Elvis and Little Richard and uh, Everly Brothers and all that, they're all, you know, they're all young. They're only 20, 21, 19, you know, 18, 12 <laughs> in the case of uh, um, Richie Valens, you know, <laughs> or the Everly Brothers. They're just so young, you know. Um, but, um, you know, and the youth culture. We've had youth culture ever since, and we've still got youth culture, and every generation of youth feels like they're the new broom, you know. Um, and, you know, the current crop think that too. Now, the things they think at the moment, and I was just about to mention gender stuff, for example, and, you know, they think they've got it all worked out. Oh, look, they probably don't. But the point is, you know, and I talked about this in another podcast. Um, let me see. Um, you have lesbians, for example, you know, lesbians um, who, you know, uh, and, uh, who um, only prefer you know, other females, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's great, you know. But then you have queers where um, men, you know, biological men, biological males um, actually see themselves as genuine females, you know, or women at least, you know what I mean? And you get a lesbian saying, um, I only want to be with biological females. And then you get, you know, theoretically 20 years from now, um, if the current progressive movement goes uh, along, um, a queer 
male who, you know, basically sees himself, you know, a transgender male, forget queer, a transgender, a transgender male who genuinely sees himself as a female. Imagine there's a lesbian club, you know, and the lesbians feel uncomfortable if biological males come in. You know, he might bring an action against those lesbians. So, you know, you can imagine that even though young progressives feel that they've got their gender stuff all um, worked out, well, probably they don't, but, you know, if they think they're on the right track, it could all be turned around in 20 years and they could be seen as... Um, you know, there could, be, there could be, in 20 years, 20-year-olds... Uh, may have that resolved, that little problem I just mentioned there, because, um, you know, that transgender male who firmly believes, you know, they, you know, that's a proper pronoun, um, are a, a woman, you know, um, absolutely can... Uh, call discrimination against a lesbian preferring a biological female. I can't see why not, you know. In fact, I can imagine um, transgender males who are females, identity-wise. They are. You can't deny that, you know. And if you're a lesbian, you can't deny that. And if you start denying that and um, showing any lack of preference for those biological males who see themselves as women... You are being discriminatory. You are breaking some law. Or at least some law you think should be in place. Yeah. You're stuck. You're stuck. You can't be a good person. You know? You, if you're a lesbian, in that sense, in that way, you're going to break a law of discrimination that is either in place or that you want in place. So what are you going to do, you know? So it's very hard to... And the Christians were the same in the ancient times. You know, they, they brought in a system that they thought was good. Um, but then, you know, these days we think it's terrible, Christianity. We think it's terrible, you know? Even I think it's terrible. Um, and that's because I think it's built on shaky uh, logic of believing what you want to believe first and then making everything else fit. You know, and the modern progressives do the same thing, arguably, because every generation of progressives does that. You know, they just don't realise it. You know, or maybe they do realise it. Okay, so that's that. Um, now, I I, th- I can't remember what I was starting this episode about. Well, I sort of do. I was trying to get, I was trying to take us back to. Yeah, I exactly know where I was going with all this. I was taking us back to. Um, where did it all start for Peter and Paul and the early apostles and all that sort of thing? I wanted to take my back to myself back to the start, but I very briefly, no, in a very long way, had to um, resolve the problem of me saying something like that. Let's get back to the start when I knew that we know nothing about the start because it's all in buried you know it's all hidden in a cloud of myth and legend you know we don't even know if it happened and all that long speech i just said was to say that it doesn't matter whether it was real or not in my book i can talk about it as if it was real because real things came of it and the real things came of it that came of it were for example have been for example example the catholic church and that's made you know most of the churches have made a very strong brick and if that's built on a shaky foundation how come it's all standing you know that's what i'm saying 
all right? Because we all know that if something's built on shaky foundations, it won't stand. But these churches, some of them are quite big. St. Patrick's Cathedral in Melbourne is very tall and it's really heavy. And if it was, on, if it was built on a shaky foundation, it would collapse. It hasn't collapsed. It looks really solid as a rock, you know? Solid as Peter. <laughs> Simon Bar Jonas. Hey, I heard on the radio today, there's a radio station, the Jonas Brothers. I actually didn't know that. I don't listen to crap radio, but it actually came on, and I think it was 101.1 or something, and they said, oh, hello, and we're the Jonas Brothers, you know, and I'm like, oh, Jonas Brothers? Oh, I've just been studying that with the papacy, you know, isn't that Paul and, I oh, know, sorry, isn't that Simon Bar Jonas and what, Andrew Bar Jonas, you know, or James, can't remember, Andrew Bar Jonas? Ah, is this is that a takeoff of the original Jonas Brothers? These Jonas Brothers on the radio, or maybe they are named Jonas. That's interesting. It was a coincidence, anyway, for me. All right, now, so getting back to the start, and all right, here's what I have sort of uncovered. Peter did spread out and start a lot of communities, including one in Rome, and the one in Rome is the one that you know, has become the Catholic Church, you know, and the Catholic Church, you know, swings it around and in retrospect and in reverse says, there you go, we are the only church that comes straight from Peter, apostolic succession and all that sort of stuff. But then I sort of start thinking, hang on, didn't he make lots of communities? You are but one of many, Catholic Church. Oh yeah, they might say, huh. We started with ourselves and worked backwards. And when you, um, when you go into a cave system, I heard about this on the Lord of the Rings, you know. I think I was reading The Hobbit, you know. And you go into the goblin caves and the caves split and the caves split and the caves split into tunnels and tunnels and tunnels. When you're coming back, it feels like you're only in one tunnel all the way back. But as you're going forward... You've, you keep coming to these little, you know, um, where, you know, T intersections, not quite, but, you know, Y intersections where the tunnels split off, split off, split off. But as you're coming back, it's all one way. Isn't that interesting, you know? And that's what the Catholic Church does, I think. They're coming back, you know, they're looking back and say, ah, bing, bang, 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 apostolic succession, all the way back to Peter. Aha, we are the one true apostolic Catholic Church, you know apostolic succession and i think that's what the catholic church does but you know if i go back in time and start back at the start um and look forward i can see lots of churches because didn't he start lots of communities oh that's interesting you know so maybe there's lots of uh, churches upon you know the rock that was peter and catholic church is just one of them just happens to be the biggest all right might be lots of popes, might not there? All right. Now, I don't know. I think the Catholic one is the only famous one left. But I'll bet you if I dug and dug and dug, I would find other churches saying, oh, no, we come from Peter too. <coughs> because apparently every major sort of church, you know, not the happy claps, <laughs> you know, I think they're off on a tangent and good luck to them. I think they started in Armenia, really. You know, I, I get this feeling because I read up on the Kardashians, <laughs> of all people um and the kardashians you know they came over from armenia and you know armenia was a happy clap sort of zone um of christianity we haven't talked about armenia yet but it was one of the you know the first two church uh, first two countries 
to take on Christianity along with, as a state religion, along with Ethiopia. They've got a real culture of Christianity, the Armenians, very special type, and um, they've got a sort of spiritual Christianity. And the Kardashians come from there. They went across to America, and a lot of people went from America, went across to, you know, like Los Angeles and everything from Armenia at a certain point in time. Maybe it was when the Turks were killing them. No, the Turks were never killing them. You know, Turks wouldn't do that. Turks wouldn't do that. Um, But when the Turks were killing all the Armenians, Armenians, I think Armenians went across to America, you know. Oh, don't worry. The Turks got killed. The Ottomans got killed in a previous time, you know, those nasty Christians. Everyone talks about the Turks doing a genocide of the uh, Armenians. Yeah, you just have to go back to uh, Peter Romanov, you know, the beautiful Peter, you know. Uh, uh, Peter? Uh, Peter? Um, uh, well, Anastasia... Um, Tsar Nicholas, <laughs> sorry, Peter the Great, I think I was thinking of. Um, yeah, Tsar Nicholas II and his beautiful family, you know, Anastasia, beautiful princess. Ah, oh, they're such a nice family. Yeah, anyway, they slaughtered Ottomans um, and, you know, they got buried under a toilet for good reason, I think, you know. Uh, he was weak, Tsar Nicholas II more than anything I think but then you know and he got it in the neck he copped it in the neck and got his whole family killed now you can say but he was just a weak man he didn't deserve that well weak men are worse than bad men all right um so you know uh no that's no excuse you know I prefer an evil man to a weak man weak men can cause greater evil you know uh all right so um the Armenians yeah they went across to America and um and they took their happy clap ways across there I think to Los Angeles and I think you know how happy claps you know charismatic Pentecostals all those sorts of things they come out of it you know that was a big movement when I was a kid uh, coming out of America, even went, in, even ended up in my small town of Lansfield. You know, how did it get there from Los Angeles and all those sorts of places? You know, Billy Graham, all this sort of stuff, happy claps. Um, and um, that's a real movement that seems to be outside the apostolic succession. You know, the stuffy, you know, hand-me-down, Pope to Pope to Pope to Bishop to Bishop to Bishop to Deacon to Deacon to Deacon. You know, I think it's outside all of that, and it's very spiritual. And it reminds me of the old spiritual... Armenians. So I think the Armenians might have had a hand, at least, in starting all that. And, um, and, the, Arme- and the Kardashians were amongst them. You know, Kardashians, you know, hardworking, you know, the American dream. I've got a lot of respect for the Kardashians and the way they came over to America and made something of themselves. They started in, um, the first Kardashians, you know, the first generation, I think, started in waste tips, you know, tips rubbish dumps and then the next generation might have got into meat packing and then you know they made enough money to send the next generation to law school and then that generation had celebrities yeah and there you have it modern kardashians yeah but that's that so all that's outside this stuffy sort of churches i'm talking about but the ones i'm talking about is like um the catholic church and you know um the orthodox churches and all that sort of thing apostolic succession how did all that start now You've got a lot of those sorts of churches, and they all go back to just 12 apostles. Right, so all go back to 12 apostles. And, um, well, if let's say there's, you know, 144 churches. There's a lot more than that. Let's say there's 1,440. Well, that means 120 churches per apostle, doesn't it? Um, so... Um, 
So there might be 120 churches built on the rock that was Peter. You know, 120 churches built on Andrew and 120 on James as well, you know, on average. Okay? So the Catholic Church might be just one of them. But the point is that's how it all started, you know. And, you know, this is the story that the Christians tell themselves. And that's good enough, good enough for me, you know. Okay, so that's that. Um, all right, I might... Um, oh, and somewhere along the line, Jesus appointed Paul, I just heard about this, Paul to be a kind of special apostle. Oh, he was special, all right. He was a real special one. Um, you know, he was half Greek, half Roman. He created Jesus, I think, in his own image, did Paul. Just joking. No, I'm not. Um, but... Uh, everyone recognised that Paul was just perfectly placed to be the preacher that would reach out to the Gentiles, you know, because the Jews weren't very good at that, and I'm talking Peter and his mates, you know. But Paul was perfect. Paul was vital for Christianity because Christianity was soon to make a break from the Jews, okay? And Paul was the link man, you know, in that, on that footy field. He was the link man, yeah. Um, so um, Paul was very important. He seems to have been appointed a special um, apostle, um, you know, concerned with reaching out to Gentiles and inviting them into the sect, the Jewish sect, which by virtue of it inviting Gentiles in was now soon not going to be something other than a Jewish sect because Jewish sects only allow Jewish people in it. You know, you've got to be circumcised, you know, and all that sort of stuff. You've got to follow the Mosaic law, you know, or you, you can't be in our sect. But Christianity was just about to break free of that and go out on its own and kind of separate itself from Jewish Jews, you know, not be Jewish anymore per se. Um, now, that might not have been that successful, except Hadrian was good enough to go and wipe out the Jews in Jerusalem. Absolute Holocaust you know, worse than Hitler and smashed the Jews and then suddenly Christianity was right there on its own. So Christianity kind of had the right idea to be a standalone religion, but it was helped along a little bit by the Romans who got rid of the mothership, you know, because the Christianity was kind of a pod that came off the mothership called Judaism, you know, Jewishness. And um, the Romans saw this pod coming, you know, persecuted the pod, Sometimes persecuted the Christians, sometimes, but absolutely obliterated the Jews, obliterated them, destroyed the temple. That's the moment that the Jews, even to this day, say we were scattered to the four winds by the evil Romans. Well, the evil Roman was Hadrian, you know, but it, you know, served a purpose for the Christians. You know, the Romans didn't intend for that to happen, but it, it worked out that way. And, you know, and therein, you know, there's the start of the church. Um, now, Peter also started a, a mission in Antioch, I just heard. So he started one in Rome and in Antioch. I haven't heard who started the main one in Constantinople, nor the one who started the main one in Alexandria, nor the one who was kind of the, the bishop of Jerusalem. But Peter seems to have Antioch and Rome locked up. Um, so that's kind of interesting in a way. So the current Pope of Antioch, I don't mind calling him a Pope, even if he is Orthodox. Uh, well, uh, oh, yeah, let's not worry about that. Them, 
there's different, you know, orthodoxes. You know, sometimes the popes cross over. There's no such thing as a pope. They're all papas, you know, they're all patriarchs. But the pope is just an English kind of word that just grew up, you know, and we kind of apply it to um, Catholic papas, patriarchs, you know, the Catholic papi- patriarch, you know. Um, all churches are Catholic. All churches are orthodox in their own minds. There's no real difference between Catholic and That recording was suddenly interrupted, as you probably noticed, and probably a good thing too. I was only halfway through my thoughts, but then even if I spoke for another hour, I'd still be halfway through my thoughts. In fact, by then I'd probably only be a quarter of a way through my thoughts, so it's a good thing that she interrupted me. Uh, And uh, the main uh, point of her ringing was to ask, how does it take an hour to go and buy minced meat for the cat? (laughs) Well, I just needed some exercise. (laughs) That's all. End of episode. She. Just she. Well, actually, it was the cat's mother worrying about the cat. You can't prove that it wasn't.